Amen. Thank you, Brother Allen. Our topic tonight is the redemption of Christ. How many are glad that we have a Redeemer tonight? Amen. We have a Redeemer. Why do we need a Redeemer? Absolutely. And he comes and he buys us back. We're going to look some some I think some interesting scripture tonight. All God's word to me is interesting, you as well. But most of us are probably more used to hearing things like our loving redeemer, our gracious redeemer, and sometimes even our mighty redeemer. But one phrase we rarely ever hear is our righteous Redeemer. I guess a little bit of biblical trivia here tonight to let you in on something. If you do a word search, and uh, if you've got in a concordance at home, and the old book style, I'm at the point in my life I can't read those little words anyway. So thank God I have a concordance on my computer, and I can do a word search. But if you type in gracious redeemer, you won't find it in the scriptures. If you type in mighty redeemer, you won't find that official title in the scriptures. If you type in loving redeemer, you won't find that either. Now, I am not here tonight to say that Christ is not loving. We know that he is. I'm not here to say that he is not gracious. We know that he is. In fact, I'm not saying he's not mighty. We know that he is. But the title, the official scriptural title for Christ is the Righteous Redeemer. Now think about that. Whether we use the word, when we think of the word gracious or loving or mighty, Would any of those on their own make him suitable to be a redeemer? Not alone. He has to be the righteous redeemer. So we're going to begin tonight looking at some words that talk about him being righteous, whether it's a servant or redeemer, whatever it might be. And then we're going to go and look at some where the word is translated just, J-U-S-T, uh, but in the Greek, it's the same word as righteous. So they're used, sometimes translated one or the other, but they both mean the same. Isaiah 53, verse 11. Anybody got that and want to read that? I think most of us know that in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, uh, God is speaking and prophesying through Isaiah about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Alan, you just read that, but notice uh, there in verse 11, God says, by his knowledge, he calls him my righteous servant. Jesus Christ is the righteous servant. Jeremiah 23.5, anybody got that? Jeremiah 23, verse 5. All right, Phyllis, I'm sure you know this answer, but I don't mean to put you on the spot. Who is that righteous branch? It's it's Jesus, isn't it? In fact, you know, God promises through Jeremiah there's going to come a time. He's going to give David a righteous branch. And, of course, that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Jeremiah prophesied that when he comes, he will execute judgment and justice in the earth. Did that happen? Yes. But he's also known as the Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, look at verse 6. 
Jeremiah 23, verse 6. The Lord, our righteousness. Now, I hope you can keep that on the sticky side of your mind. We're not going to come back to this exact verse, but we're going to talk more about the Lord being our righteousness and how important that is in our salvation, in our walk with God. In Malachi, he's called the son, S-U-N, of righteousness. Malachi 4.2, anybody got that one? Who is the son of righteousness? Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's our righteous redeemer. But he's also known, was known as a righteous man. Of course, when he came and God became flesh. Luke 23, look at verse 47. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. He was a righteous man. Now, by the way, if you're righteous, do you have to tell everybody that? No, they see it. And this centurion we talked about a few weeks ago saw that he was a righteous man. But he was also the righteous judge. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Thank you. Now, by the way, he is the righteous judge. He's the one who gives out the crowns. Will he make any mistakes? No. Will he overlook somebody? No. He is the righteous judge. In the book of Hebrews, he is uh, seen as the uh, antitypical Melchizedek. And again, as Melchizedek was known as the king of righteousness, so is Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, look at verses 2 and 3. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first by being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but notice this, but made like unto the Son of God, he abides a priest continually. Just as Melchizedek was known as a king of righteousness, so is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, the righteous redeemer. That's our focus tonight. The righteous redeemer. But what's interesting, this righteousness of Christ, so important, this Christ who is the righteous Redeemer is also our advocate with the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. First John 2, look at verse 1. Jesus Christ. The righteous. He is our advocate with the Father. Now, I mentioned, I mentioned at the beginning of our lesson tonight that the same Greek word that sometimes is translated righteousness is also translated just. So, again, our righteous, just Redeemer. You remember... Uh, when Christ was arrested and he was taken before Pilate, uh, his wife sent a warning to him. Matthew 27, verse 19. Anybody want to read that? And we don't, thank you, Philip, we don't know anything about Pilate's wife, except what we read here. 
But what did she recognize about Jesus? Something, he was righteous. He was a just man. Something different. And so she sends a message to her husband, <laughs> leaving one home. You know, don't, don't deal with his situation. But notice what Pilate said in the same chapter down at verse 24, Matthew 27. Yeah, verse 24. So what did Pilate see? Now keep in mind, he was basically on trial. What did Pilate say about him? He was just. He was just. Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 3. Look at verse 14, what he says. But you denied the Holy One, and, notice this, the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And i got to tell you, folks, you, you know, I love this, the Word of God. I know you do as well. But my question is, who is Peter speaking to here, primarily? The Jews. And Probably there were some Pharisees there and Sadducees. And so Peter didn't want to hurt their feelings. Right? So does he try to soft, you know, soften them? No. He said, you denied the Holy One, the just, the righteous one. And you asked for a murderer. Oh, that hurts. But remember, Jesus is the righteous Redeemer. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching, and he really kind of covers the history of Israel up until that present day. And look what he says in verse 52 of Acts 7. Alan, think about this for a moment. The question Stephen's asking to this crowd. Which of the prophets have you not, your forefathers not persecuted? What's the answer? Not one of them. They persecuted them. But that was them. In fact, he said, many of them were killed who were prophesying of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the just one, what he uses here. And now he says to them what? Yeah, you betrayed and murdered him. Boy, he won them over, didn't he? But the fact of the matter, they did betray and murder the just one. So Stephen's point is, you haven't changed. You haven't Change. In Acts 22, Paul is giving sort of his testimony. Not the first time he's done that, and it won't be the last. And he is recounting the day back in Acts 9 when God met him on the road to Damascus. And he is sharing, actually, what Ananias had said to him during that time there in Damascus. Look at verse 14, Acts 22. Okay, now this is what Ananias told Paul. 
You know, Paul had been uh, struck blind there on the road. Um, he asked, who are you? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Why are you kicking against the goats? He was blinded by the light. And now Ananias tells him the purpose of it. And I don't know how many times I've read the book of Acts through the years, read that verse. But it's interesting, one of the the requirements of an apostle is you had to have seen Jesus Christ. Okay? With your own eyes. And here in this verse, Ananias says to Paul, God's chosen you. Our God has chosen you that you could see the just one. Who's the just one? Jesus Christ. But also, hear the voice of his mouth. So even Ananias says, Paul, you have seen the just one. First Peter chapter 3, look at verse 18. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Thank you, Phyllis. Notice what Peter says. He suffered for our sins, the just. Who's that? Jesus Christ for the unjust. Who's that? You and I. And the reason he did that, that he might bring us to God, our righteous Redeemer, the just one. In Zechariah chapter 9, he prophesies of the earthly, I'm sorry, the entry into Jerusalem before the Passion Week. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Thank you. Again, speaking through the mouth and pen of Zechariah, God says it's time to rejoice. There's one coming. He is just. Now remember, was he loving? Sure. Is he gracious? Yes, he is. Is he mighty? Without a doubt. But most importantly, he is our righteous redeemer. And if he were not, he could have not, he could not have taken care of our sins. Now, all of that's important because we have to understand his official character, his position in the Godhead. Now, if he were not righteous, could he feel that position? No. He had to be righteous. Revelation 19, verse 11. Anybody got that? Wow. John's writing. He sees heaven open up. Who's he see? Jesus Christ. That's his position. He is a part of the Godhead. And John said, the one that was sitting on that horse was called not only faithful and not only true, but John says he judges in righteousness. How many know that's the only way he can? He cannot do otherwise. Why? Because he is our righteous Redeemer. 
our righteous Redeemer. We're looking at his official character and position. Zechariah 13, look at verse 7. Thank you, Alan. Now, again, we're looking at his official character, his position. And Zechariah is prophesying about the one who God refers to as my shepherd. How many know that through the years for Israel, they had a lot of lousy shepherds? A lot of them. They were a poor excuse. They were not pleasing to God. And so Zechariah is prophesying, and in contrast to the false prophets, the Lord says, I want to show you my true shepherd, my true prophet, the Messiah. It's interesting in the King James, there in Zechariah 13, verse 7, God refers to the one who is my fellow. Interesting term in the Hebrew. And it means a near kinsman. He's my near kinsman. And so the Lord is saying my fellow. He is claiming the identity or the unity of essence with his shepherd. He is my near kinsman. So what he's saying, he's affirming the deity of the Messiah. The deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my shepherd. He is my fellow. He is deity. Now, we've done a study a week or so ago, a couple weeks ago now probably, on the Incarnation. And again, I want to ask you, was Jesus God or was he man? Both. Which one was he most of? Equal, right, okay. But understand, God prophesied. He's Messiah, he's deity. And in those verses we just read in Revelation and uh, in Zechariah, the father's fellow, using that King James word, and equal, we see him in his official character, and we see him as the God-man mediator. But also in those verses, <laughs> they declare that the Lord Jesus Christ they declare it clearly, is righteous in his person. Thank God for that. He is righteous in the administration of his office. He's a righteous judge. But he's also righteous as he discharged the great commission God had given to him. He is righteous in every area. He is our righteous Redeemer. In Isaiah chapter 11, we see there in verse 5, long before the incarnation of Christ, look what it says, Isaiah 11 verse 5. Do you know anybody else like that? No. He is our righteous Redeemer. Psalm 40 verse 9 affirms that by the spirit of prophecy. Anybody got Psalm 40 verse 9? Thank you. 
Would you agree that God sent Christ to earth on a mission? A great mission. Did he fail any part of that mission? No. Not one part of it. In fact, there was no fault. There was no failure of the tremendous task God had committed to him. Now remember, and this verse is not part of our outline tonight, but in the Gospel of John, I think it's chapter 5, could be wrong about that, but it's the Gospel of John. Jesus made a statement where he said, I always do the will of the Father. What's the word always mean? All the time. Do we know anybody who does anything always? Probably not. Probably not. But Jesus said, I always do the will of the Father. John 17, look at verse 4. This is actually the high priestly prayer of Christ. John 17, verse 4. What's Jesus saying? I did exactly. I glorified you. I honored you. I have finished the work you sent me to do. So please understand, God himself identified Jesus Christ as his righteous servant. And that tells us that Jesus completely, excellently executed all the work God had entrusted him to do. He's a righteous redeemer. Hebrews 11, I'm sorry, Hebrews 3, verses 1 and 2. Spirit of God reminds us, and again, God's Word is uh, breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit directs these writers. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Christ was faithful to the one who appointed, appointed Him. Who appointed Him? God did. And by the way, what's the word faithful mean? You do what you're told to do. You do... Uh, 50% of it? 90% of it. Every bit of it. You're right, Philip. Yeah, there you go. You do it all. Because if you don't do it all, you're not faithful. But the Spirit of God through the writer of Hebrews says, He was faithful to the one who appointed Him. Psalm 45, look at verse 7. Think about this. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. It has to be that way because he is the righteous redeemer. And it's interesting, of course, Psalm is really a prophecy, if you will. And when God does reward Christ, he makes that statement. You, ho- you are who you are. You've accomplished what you've did because you absolutely love righteousness and you, to the same token, hate wickedness. But also, Christ is the righteous redeemer of his people. Now hear me well. 
Because our righteousness is in him and him alone. Jeremiah 23, verse 6. Okay, we took that verse a little bit earlier, but that's our our focus tonight. Now, keep in mind. He is the Lord, our righteousness. Now think about that. Understand the implication here. What does the Bible say about our own righteousness? It's like filthy rags. It's like filthy rags. So Christ comes... And he works out a perfect righteousness for us. And whenever we believe upon him, that righteousness, that perfect righteousness is imputed. Another word is reckoned to our account. And that's why Jeremiah prophesied and designated him the Lord, our righteousness. I want to be careful how I say this. I don't want to be misconstrued. But Christ was righteous. Not as a private person, what I mean is, not for himself alone. But he was righteous for us. You and I, who are sinners, he was righteous for us and for our salvation. Now, by the way, if he wasn't righteous for us, how could we be saved? There'd be absolutely no way. No way. So Christ comes. He acts as God's righteous servant. But here's the best thing. He is my righteous sponsor. He's yours. Isn't that great? He is our righteous sponsor. And do you know, as we stand here tonight, sit here tonight, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our righteousness. What's he see? His own righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. So Christ comes, became, God became flesh, Jesus Christ. He lived... And he died that all of the infinite merits of his obedience would be made over to us. Think about that. Imputed to us. That's it. Believe. And it's paid in full. In justifying his sinful people, God never disregarded his law. He never dishonored his law. In fact, the Bible is clear, he established his law. Romans 3, verse 31. Somebody read that, please. Romans 3, verse 31. Is that what I have up there? That's what I've got down here, Phyllis. I can't be wrong. I could be wrong, though. Now, remember, hold on. Now, by the way, Paul is writing here in the book of Romans to the church at Rome. 
in the first three chapters, the whole world's on trial. And Paul is leading up to chapter 4, of course, and uh, going to make a point that we're saved apart from the law through faith. So Paul said, because of faith, is that void the law? The answer is no. May it never be. Absolutely not. Paul says that simply establishes the law. So why is that? Because the Redeemer was made under the law. And because he was made under the law, did God, how should I say this? Did he relax the requirement of the law? No. Absolutely not. Not by one jot, not one iota. Nothing was relaxed. Galatians 4, verse 4. Made under the law. Our righteous Redeemer. Now think about this. The law had been around quite a few years. Up until Christ who had succeeded in keeping it perfectly. No one. But Christ gave to the law a personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. So when he came to this earth, he magnified the law, and he made it honorable. Isaiah 42, look at verse 21. Thank you, Avenda. Now remember, Isaiah is prophesying. Boris priest. Why? Because Jesus will magnify the law and he will make it honorable. Our righteous Redeemer. And because of that, God is not only gracious, but God is just. Because the wonderful thing about our God At the same moment, he is the justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And that's true because Jesus satisfied every requirement, everyone, of righteousness on behalf of all those who had placed their faith in him. Romans 3, 26. Romans 3.26. He's the just one, but he's also the justifier. I'm really glad for that tonight. Our righteous Redeemer. So whenever somebody asks a question, How in the world can those who have no righteousness of their own have no way to produce their own righteousness? How in the world can that person become righteous before God? How can we, mankind, every individual who's ever lived, who are rebellious, filled with corruption, how can we ever draw near to the one who is holy, holy, holy? The only way we can do that is by coming to God as unrighteous. 
coming to God, realizing we have no ability to remove our unrighteousness. And when we come to God, we recognize, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to offer you. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I can offer nothing that will satisfy you. Nothing at all. Isn't it amazing? Let's be honest tonight. Sometimes we we almost break our arm patting ourselves on the back. We've done so good. But what do you think our response would be if Christ was standing right before us? We realize nothing that I bring simply to the cross I claim. Simply to the cross. And simply because we were not able And could not ever be able to reach the high and holy requirements of the law. You know what God did? He brought His righteousness down to us. Isaiah 45, look at verse 13. Thank you, Phyllis. Not part of our outline tonight, but in Romans 10, Paul is addressing the issue of salvation. And he asks the question, and basically it says, what does the Bible say? You don't have to go up to heaven to bring it down. Why? God already brought it down in Christ. It's near us, Paul says, even the words that we speak. And so when we couldn't go to him, guess what he did? Yeah, he came to us. And God said, I bring near. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, my righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. Now, by the way, that, that righteousness, God brought it near to sinners. When the word became flesh. And when he tabernacled among men. That righteousness is brought near to us in the gospel. Great news. Because that's where the righteousness of God is revealed. And this righteous God, think about this, our righteous Redeemer, takes that righteousness and imputes it to all who believe. And from that point on, he deals with this according to the rewards of his righteousness. Romans 1 verse 17. Paul had just just written that he's not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God and salvation. Paul says that's where the that's where God's righteousness is revealed. It's revealed from faith to faith, just like the Bible says in Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. So understand this. God made Christ to be Sin for us, because we could never become righteous on our own. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Sin for us, 
All right, thank you, Phyllis. Now notice there in 2 Corinthians 5.21, there is sort of a double imputation here. A double reckoning, if you will. Now, we see our sins were imputed to Christ. But we also see that his righteousness was imputed to us. Think about that. Now remember, Paul didn't say to be made righteous, but we're made righteousness itself. We are made righteousness itself. And not just that. The righteousness of God. And I have to ask a question. What higher level can we reach? None. None whatsoever. So, in the same manner that Christ was made sin, we are made righteousness. I need to ask this question. Did Christ ever sin? No. He did not know sin. But because of his character and his position as mediator, on our behalf, God dealt with him as though he was guilty. He became sin for us. So that was that imputation, sin, our sin on him. But also don't miss this. We are destitute of legal righteousness. Yet the very moment we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, God looks at us, the divine majesty, and now he sees us as righteous creatures. Wow. Righteous creatures. And both were through imputation. I got to tell you, folks, that's the best deal I ever made. Amen. I gave him my sins and he gives me his righteousness. A righteous redeemer. I'll never get over the fact he loves me that much. Now remember, don't, don't think for a moment that we had any inherent righteousness involved in this transaction. Because the Bible is very clear, we are made the righteousness of God in Him. We have no inherent righteousness of our own. It's all in Him. So the same way the sin imputed to Christ, that's inherent in us. That's part of our nature. But also know in the same way, the righteousness by which you and I have been justified are inherit, inherit in Christ. So God had a plan. He sent a righteous Redeemer. And the divine plan of redemption... Fully satisfied every last claim of the law. Amen. Amen. And we will be. And we will be. There is nothing in all the requirements of the law that Jesus Christ did not perform. There are no penalties the law brought about that Jesus Christ did not sustain. I love that gospel hymn, Jesus paid it all. Christ alone fulfilled every precept. He had unspotted purity of hearts, perfect integrity of life. And here's what I love about it. He exhausted the whole curse of the law. 
Amen. <laughs> he exhausted the whole curse when he hung on Calvary for our sins. His obedience brought a higher honor on the law than any descendant of Adam could have. And here's the great news. Sadly, the perfection of God, they were, and hear me well, they were dishonored by our rebellion. But they're glorified in our redemption. Our righteous Redeemer. He is righteous. He is inflexibly just. When he exacts vengeance. But thank God. He is unbelievably rich in mercy. Aren't you glad? Our righteous Redeemer. And what's interesting is this. Such good news. All the interests of holiness are secured for us when we receive redemption through faith. Through faith. And whenever we receive that redemption through faith, God builds a fire in our hearts. He kindles in the heart a deep hatred for sin and the deepest love and gratitude for God. I'm real thankful tonight for that. Jesus Christ, our righteous Redeemer. Praise his holy name. Amen. Let's take a few moments tonight for prayer.